Hi and welcome to The Cloud Show. My name is Jez Back and with me is the pride of Dundee, Andrew McLean. Thank you very much. Um, so today we're talking about cloud, cloud, IoT, AI, Bitcoin, blockchain, you name it. It is the energy field that created all living technology. It surrounds us, it penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together. Jez. Yeah, well, I can't believe, yeah. what we're going to do is take some of the really key topics, get some really good, interesting people in, have a great conversation and go and get to the heart of some of these issues. I think, I think there's a lot of confusion out there. I think a lot of people are still confused. Cloud, the cloud, whatever you want to call it, oh, has been yes. around for years now and people are still like, oh, you mean Dropbox? Yes, or, or they say that uh, their Apple iCloud account is the cloud. Um, <laughs> I, I have a real big thing about the cloud. People, to, to use the term the cloud as if it's one thing, I, I get very excited about it, about it being legion and there being many, and really, really confusing for people. So no doubt you're going to hear a lot about that later on. Right, so can you tell us the format of this show? Yeah. Is, it, is our pilot? Absolutely. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, a number of key issues in the news. We're also going to take on a key subject, and then we're going to bring some really good guests on to go and talk about that. And then from there, we're going to wrap it all up draw some conclusions, and then we'll be able to get you guys to speak to us on social media and get you involved in the conversation. Excellent. So I think we should start with the news. Yeah, Because absolutely. there's been a lot of news this week around cloud technology. Now, the big one, the big one, and I'm not going to ask if you've invested, I'm not going to ask if anyone's invested, is the Bitcoin. Now, we don't want to talk, Bitcoin isn't really a cloud conversation, so I'm going somewhere with this. However, Bitcoin at the moment, as of recording, is about 13 grand per one Bitcoin. Now, you could have bought one of these five years ago for pennies, and now it's 13 grand. Litecoin doing incredibly well. Yep, Ethereum. Ethereum doing quite well. I mean, Ethereum's about 300 at the moment, but it's kind of like that. Well, Litecoin went from about pound to that in about four months. Yeah. However, the... Um, one of the creators of Litecoin, uh, Charlie something, uh, is warning against this this boom of Bitcoin and also the CEO of uh, Coinbase. It's one of the big apps that people are using for trading. Anyway, I don't want to talk about Bitcoin. I want to talk about the power consumption yeah. that is being taken for Bitcoin. So Bitcoin involves this thing called Bitcoin mining. Do you either buy Bitcoin or you've got this thing, Bitcoin mining, a bit like gold mining, but it uses very, very big computers. Now, the problem with this is the amount of power these computers are using. So the thousands of machines all over the place. Uh, now, there have been a lot, there's been a lot of debate about this. However, one statistic showed that Bitcoin's annual electricity consumption is around about 32.56 terawatt hours. So to put that into context, that is more than the energy consumption for Denmark, which is 30.7, and the Republic of Ireland, which is 25.7. What are we going to do? A, do you think these are accurate? So, I think this is going to be one of those really interesting conversation, conversations like about the economics. This is rather like the, the conversation about the economics of cloud. So, firstly, the cost of gold mining mm. is bigger than the cost of mining Bitcoin. Okay. So, Per Bitcoin for every, you know, um, I think it's ounce of gold, it costs more to mine gold. So there is a, a, a question of relativity here uh, and relevance uh, as to what we're talking about. But I think there's another, there's a couple more dynamics to this. One is 
what type of energy is being used? Is it renewable? Mm. Yeah, is it green type energy? Um, whether people are actually using their own private infrastructure to do it, or whether they're actually using cloud services. And then there's a whole interesting dynamic that says, mm. does, does the economics of using cloud services stack up better than using your own infrastructure? And depending on how long and all those sort of things, and if this is like the tulip bubble um, for Bitcoin, then is that really going to stack up when people start spending huge amounts of money on physical infrastructure? Or are they going to take the risk short term and consume cloud? So it's one of those, it depends. It's rather like the Brexit negotiations. You, know, you can't really sort of tell them, well, I guess a whole bunch of different scenarios and no one can really predict the future very well. And economists are really good at talking about the past, but not very much about the future. But, and I'm not going to try and make that, 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 that attempt myself. But I think what's going to be really interesting is saying, okay, if you are going to invest in Bitcoin, and especially into Bitcoin mining, how are you going to set up your infrastructure to do this? Mm. And making the costs of, and the infrastructure of that work is going to be actually more of a business challenge than it is a technical challenge. Because actually spinning this stuff up is relatively straightforward. Mm. And actually, you can go on the internet now. You can go on Google or any other web browsing engine you want to. And it will tell you how to do it. It's not hard. However, it does require a lot of crunch. And you know, when they talk about a Bitcoin transaction, you know, there, there was a, I read a report that uh, said that for one bit, Bitcoin trans transaction, one Bitcoin transaction, sorry, it takes up the same amount of energy as the average household for users in one month. Yeah, yeah, this, this is exactly it. But it's a bigger problem. So we take Bitcoin to the side, and we're actually just about to talk about quantum computing in a second. Yeah. That's for our next news item. However, you have uh, AI, you have all these different things that are growing and evolving, and you know they are using massive amounts of power. And it's, I mean, there were countries that have had power outage and they're blaming all this Bitcoin mining on it. I think it's Venezuela or somewhere like yeah, that. Yeah. Now, whether that's true, I don't know, but I, I just assume it is. It was in the news, it must be true. Um, but the, I mean, it's gonna be a problem. Uh, this this whole growth of cloud technologies, and I mean, this is a conversation for another day, but it is a concern. Yeah, it, you know, it, this, I think this is one of those things where people need to be reminded that serverless computing, does involve servers. Yeah. Bitcoin mining does involve infrastructure to run it. Yeah, all of these things that it's not just invisible magic, that there is actually physical things behind it that make it work. That's definitely one which we're going to do for another show. Another Guarantee show. you. Yeah. Absolutely. That's my commitment. We will do this. So our next uh, news item is regarding Microsoft is now offering a de developers a preview of its quantum computing yeah. kit. Well, they haven't actually made a working quantum computer yet. Has anyone? Well, Google, or rather Alphabet, have said they have, mm. and IBM have said they've done it. But there was a company that um, did it in 2012, and I have to look up who it was, but there is someone who actually made one, but it was quite limited in its ability, and it could only do specific uh, mathematical computations. Mm. But in terms of you know, who's going to win the, the, the quantum computing war, no one's actually made a working model that goes out there and does this. So I think what Microsoft is doing is really interesting. Firstly, they're the first people to go out there and saying, right, we're actually making a programming language. So you've got C Sharp is the classic computing. So they've got C Sharp, classic computing. So what, yeah. what did their entire marketing department and multi-million <laughs> pound company 
that deals with this come up with well, well it, it was it was a, a marketing genius stroke <laughs> they called it Q sharp Q sharp <laughs> yeah. excellent but I mean this is all around the Q bit so for those people who are not really with the quantum computing conversation you have ones and zeros binary when you're talking about classic computing however when you're talking about quantum computing you have a thing where actually your ones and zeros can be the same at the same time and that's just a little bit mind-bending. It's all to do with physics. Uh, so if you didn't pay attention at school in your physics thing, then you might struggle with this. Um, but don't worry. Essentially, what the whole thing is about is a programming, programming language that can help talk about how you can manipulate qubit and do the processing that goes with it. That's essentially it. Will you be buying a quantum computer? Well, I don't think... So this is my opinion, right? <laughs> I, I, this is my opinion. I don't think quantum computing will make it to be a personal use kind of classic computer thing. It will have its absolute place in the enterprise. It will have its place you know, out there doing large scale computational stuff. But the problem is, ironically, uh, and pun intended, it is probabilistic, mm. not deterministic. Mm. So therefore, it makes it quite difficult to use on a, on a more you know, limited you know, ra you know, personal level. So. Well, I won't be buying one because I don't have millions and millions <laughs> of pounds. However, large organizations, I think, will be. And that's probably coming in about five to ten years if the continued investment happens. You know, the Chinese are investing really heavily in this area. You know, you've got IBM, you've got Alphabet, you've got Microsoft, and a whole bunch of other people who are investing here. So, you know, if you, if you follow the Gartner trend that says it's just coming up to that peak of inflated expectation, uh, I actually think probably about five to ten years we'll actually see something really meaningful about quantum computing. Uh, I'm hoping for time travel or singularity. <laughs> uh, okay, so we're going to take a quick break now. Uh, when we come back, we are delighted to be joined by Nehal Takur, the Director for Business Development at OneClick. Don't go away. Hi, and welcome back to The Cloud Show. I'm Jez Back, and with me is Andrew McLean. Hello. So... Now we're going to move on to the main part of the show where we're going to be looking into a specific topic. And this week, we're going to be looking at whether cloud service providers are doing enough for small to medium businesses. With us today is Nihal Takor. He's the Director of Business Development at OneClip. Welcome. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Andy. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah. So, can you just tell me a bit about OneClick? What is it? Give us a quick rundown. So, OneClick uh, is a workspace provisioning and streaming platform as a service. Um, what we do is um, we take away the pain of uh, deploying workstations, or sorry, deploying applications into a browser-based workplace. So that's, uh, that's our core uh, deliverable. The way we do it is you connect to any server location, on-premise, public cloud, private cloud, deploy applications securely from there into uh, a browser-based workspace and there is no training required and the users just start working straight away. Uh, it works on any HTML5 uh, browser and uh, you can access it from anywhere in the world. Excellent, and, and this has to be accessed while you're online or can you access it offline? Well, uh, the uh, initial uh, startup, so the workspace, has to be done online. Mm -hmm. and once, you're, once you're up and running, uh, if you lose connection, then it will remain online using the cache of your end user device for a while. Um, if it remains disconnected for a long time, then you, it will reset your workspace. Okay, 
But the, basically, if you have a, a, a short break, then it will kind of sync up the work you've done whilst exactly working what, cash, like right? you're like you're going on a going in a train and mm. you lose your connection and you lose you know you're back online again. You start working. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Last reading. Yeah, because that's always been a bit of an issue with VDI uh, in the past. But not an issue, but people that are traveling a lot, they they were using RDP uh, terminal services, and okay, the session would save, but it was just gone and sometimes the session would reset and you're like no I've lost everything <laughs> yeah uh, it was it was a big problem so that's really interesting there's now offline uh, and synchronization and things it's, it's pretty cool yeah, I worked for two years running off a Citrix platform mm. and then the moment you you didn't even dare use it when you're on a train <laughs> it was you're just begging for trouble when you do that so yeah absolutely but now it's it's easier isn't it nowadays you get Wi-Fi on the trains mm. you get Wi-Fi on the planes now so uh, you know you're always connected most of the time yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, and, and I think it, it's a really cool and interesting thing. So how are you marketing you know, the whole one-click platform to small to medium businesses? You know, what's the value proposition? So for, um, I mean, it, it, the idea is to give flexibility. I mean, we are, our go-to-market strategy is through channel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a two-step approach. So via distributor or value-added reseller. Uh, going to MSP or a system integrator mm -hmm. and the idea is uh, you know it's actually made for SMBs or small and medium scale business even micro businesses because uh, it offers ultimate scalability there is the mobility uh, with the you know access from wherever um, and you can I mean my first customer is just three workspace uh, so it doesn't make any difference to us uh, you can stream as many applications as you want uh, there is no upper limit to the applications or the type of applications and the ultimate flexibility is you can select whatever OS you want. So it is WinOS, Unix, you can combine them together. You can have, you can even stream entire desktops if you want. Oh, right. okay, brilliant. So just taking your, your, your point about the channel, I mean, do, do you think the channel and CSPs are doing enough you know, for small to medium businesses? Or is this just like an impossible task? There's so many services out there that you know, essentially either you've got to scale, you've got to specialize, or simply shut down. Because more small to medium you know, size enterprises, they're out there, they're, they're doing their best. They're not necessarily got good, strong technical skills in their own organization. And so they're trying to work out how to run their businesses and how to use technology to the right advantage. Do, do you think that enough is being done by the channel and, and by CSPs to help educate them and, and, and help them you know, be successful? Or is it just too difficult? I think it's a big beast. So I agree with you. Uh, there is a lot of choice out there. Um, and for a small business, um, I would only say coming from, coming from a working public sector for a long time, that it should be the business that uh, should dictate what kind of technology you should use and not just the technology dictating what kind of business you would be doing. Mm -hmm. So if, if the small and micro businesses actually adopt that kind of a, uh, approach, then you just go out looking for um, either a cloud service provider or, or a SaaS or an IS that actually is going to add value to your business. It's going to help you to scale up the business it's going to help doing productivity work. You know, you've got people out there, you know, catering companies, yeah. where you know, you've got lots of cooks and you've got lots of people who are supporting, you know, supporting the chefs out there while they're doing things. And they're going to be doing stuff with their mobile phone. You have you know, roadside you know, companies you know, down the road from where I live. You've got Amberon who 
you know, they do the traffic management light systems for when they're doing roadworks yeah. and that sort of stuff. The guys are out there and they're doing their stuff off smartphones and, and tablets and things. And, and I totally appreciate with one click you can run this image you know, on, on any platform in that way. But do you think that enough is being done about sort of making the applications consumable on mobile you know, for people to be able to do those things? Or do you think there's going to be a, a bigger demand for things like one click? where they're going to have to sit on an interface to, to get going. And obviously then there's a whole question about the economics of that really working out for SMBs. Yeah, so, um, I mean, let's, let's put OneClick on the side because OneClick, what it does is it provisions any application, yeah. including those which will manage the traffic lights. So mm -hmm. including IoT applications. Uh, and uh, that's not an issue. I think um, when it comes to whether the, those kind of mobile applications are actually connecting uh, appropriately at the back end and making use of all that trillions of you know terabytes of data and and uh, having uh, some sort of a way of quickly making helping you to take those decisions which could be you know millisecond or a second and that is that is a huge huge ask for any uh, bandwidth providers mm. and that's where that's where um, I mean if you say chink in the armor uh, of any service services like OneClick is heavily dependent upon bandwidth, and then then we get into the uh, the whole ar uh, argument or argument, but discussion about 4G and 5G, and what does that mean, and you know where it will help. And I think uh, when you have a 5G kind of a bandwidth, it will surely help these kind of applications to run a lot more smoothly. Uh, you know, and you'll be able to those applications will be able to use lot more, uh, I would say, informed choices would be available to the end users. No, I totally agree about 5G. I mean, it's an, an area that's close to my heart because I live in the Southwest. Yeah. So obviously, communications aren't as good as they are in other parts of the country. Yeah. And so, you know, for small to medium enterprises to be able to operate effectively down there, I mean, I can, I, there's another company down, down in the Southwest who make gates and fences. And they, were, they had this, this operation that was sitting on the side of a hill and they were on literally a piece of very rickety wire for their yeah. entire bandwidth demand. And so they actually end up using a lot more mobile, even satellite com, because they just couldn't get the physical infrastructure. Yeah. Now, obviously, with the investment that's going in and with 5G coming on, I, I totally agree with you. I think there is a really interesting moment where at the way how applications will be consumed will be done differently. Exactly. Why? Because the suddenly the floodgates open where you can do so much more so with the application. More, yeah. Yeah. So Neil, I think that's been a great conversation. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, brilliant. And uh, well, we'll go now cut to a break. Uh, we'll speak to you soon. And thanks very much for being with us. And welcome back to the Cloud Show. You are joining us today as we are talking about cloud service providers, be it AWS, be it Microsoft, be it IBM. Are they doing enough for the SMB market? So I am delighted today to have our guest. Would you like to introduce our guest? Yeah, well, why don't you introduce yourself? Happy to you. Um, so I'm Vera Loftus. I'm the managing director for Blue Wolf here in the UK. Um, and Blue Wolf is a business that is consulting, yes, but mostly focused on the Salesforce platform. So very specialized in what we implement and what we advise our customers on. Excellent. And um, with Blue Wolf, how, how big is your sort of focus on the SMB market versus enterprise? So it's actually an evolving question because we, you know, 
up until the acquisition about 18 months ago, had a little focus on the SMB market, but most of our business was kind of mid-market and enterprise. With the scale of IBM, we've now kind of reevaluated the scope of the market that we're after. Um, and our aim is to be able to service every Salesforce customer from enterprise down to SMB. So we've actually put together over the last 12 months packages that are specific for SMB to make sure that we are servicing that market in a framework and a format that they can invest in. Excellent. And so what do you think the biggest challenges are for the SMB market, especially you know, those who are running instances of Salesforce? I think it's what does that investment curve look like, right? So when you buy Salesforce as a platform, because it's got so many capabilities and you can do so much to improve the customer experience, oftentimes it's how do I get started without spending a fortune and how do I get you know my users on board without committing a roadmap of you know every module Salesforce offers. And so a lot of the focus in the beginning for us is you know what does that start off program look like? How do I invest a, li a little, get a lot, you know, get a user base that gets excited about an application, um, and then create an investment strategy that yields over time? Because mm, you, your tagline is uh, we don't have customers, we have a community. Yeah. What, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, so part of it too, you know, you're buying when you look at the Salesforce ecosystem, you're buying a platform, mm. but you are also buying into a community, and so we do like to corral our customers together. We do like them to learn from one another. We set up multiple forums so that Blue Wolf isn't your only advisor because I do think that customers learn based on the experience of others. Good, bad, and different. You know, you definitely gain the biggest insight by an experience that someone else has had. And so our position in the marketplace is to advise, yes, on the technology, but also to make sure that customers are leaning on each other so that innovation is a collaborative function. It's not just dictated by the big SIs. That's really interesting. Yeah, I've long held the, the view, you know, classic you know, Chevron consulting, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's, that's dying. And the, yeah. the need for ecosystems to form for customers to be successful is really, really key. Absolutely. Yeah, I was gonna say, well, what, what's your thoughts on that? And how do you think the best way to yeah. create those ecosystems? Well, I think one, if you look at Blue Wolf's business model, it's not the traditional long-term you know, consulting projects where we're in there for five years. You know, we are really looking to help a customer, you know, understand the roadmap, create, you know, a platform that they can sustain over time, but make themselves sufficient, right? And as quickly as we can do that, we will. And so a big onus, you know, on our team is how do we make sure that we're educating, you know, the project team and the users along the way? How do you make sure that customers have the right governance process in place? How do you make sure that they understand the forums and communities you know, that they can leverage? Um, and ultimately, how do you help them stand up a team, you know, whether that's purely internal or a hybrid of internal and external, that helps them sustain that innovation? Because you know, the biggest mistake we could make as a partner is we convince an SMB firm to invest in Salesforce. You know, we get an initial project and then it kind of dies on the vine. All of a sudden, they've purchased these licenses they're not really getting the ROI. You know, if we set them up correctly at first and help them sustain that over time, they'll be a customer for life. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's clear that you're doing the whole education bit, which mm. is great. So what do you think that the, the CSPs could be doing, and the MSPs could be doing more to help the, the SMB market? That's a lot of acronyms. What can the cloud service providers do to help the small to medium businesses out there? Well, I think you see a shift even on, you know, it, as you look at Salesforce's announcement around Dreamforce to this whole My Trailblazer. And so there was a big emphasis on, you know, self-paced learning and making sure that as the provider, you know, they're equipping their customers to do as much self-service as they can. I think you're seeing that 
taken to the next level, right? They're enabling customers to not only consume that content, but to customize it, to internalize it, you know, to push it out to their internal communities. And I do think, you know, it is a testament to their commitment to making sure that customers leverage the platform and not necessarily that you have to go back to Salesforce or Blue Wolf every time a new piece of functionality comes out, but that you actually can educate yourself on it and then you know start to actually innovate and put those things in place um, without spending any more money. Yeah, and that, I mean, so interesting, four out of 10 SMB said that you know, managing costs and technology mm. is a challenge. So yeah, that kind of goes to your ROI conversation. Mm. What were Blue Wolf doing about sort of really helping the, the, that business case generation and also seeing that through? Yeah. Because, yeah it's great to write business case, yeah. but then making it stick is, yeah. is the trick, right? Absolutely. Well, and I think looking at cloud technologies, what a business case constitutes almost takes a completely different mind shift, right? You know, the old days of I'm going to write a three-year business case and I'm going to, you know, yield five million in return just doesn't work that way. The whole point of cloud is that it's an incremental investment, right? And so your business case has to be flexible with your business. And so I think that you've got to look at goals in the much shorter term. So, you know, what are we trying to do this quarter? What's the overall strategy for this year? But what what are the behaviors that we actually need to impact now? And how do we start to prioritize what we release based on that? Because I think that's where it gets a little bit out of sync. You, you get a customer who has a very robust business case, you know, has a roadmap for how they're going to implement the technology. But then all of a sudden something shifts, you know, a customer need, a regulation, something in the market that you need to respond to doesn't necessarily marry it up. And so how do you create a structure by which your business case is ever evolving? And the real trick, if you get it right, in my opinion, is how do you actually build that into your applications? So how do you create kind of pillars of prioritization and algorithms where you know, requirements are getting dictated by your ever-evolving business case, by your user feedback, um, and how is that all transparent through the application? So rather than you know, trying to have silos of people and process to manage that, put it all in one place. That's the beauty of Salesforce. Um, you can actually manage it all locally. And then as it changes, the business is made aware of those changes in real time. Excellent. Well, that has been really interesting. It has been very interesting. Yeah, thank you very much for yeah, that. Thank you for great. having me. Hey, it's been fantastic. And you know, good luck thanks. with everything that's going on. And uh, well, thanks very much for that. We'll come after the break. Uh, and after then, we will do a quick wrap up and also have a quick look at some predictions for 2018. And welcome back to the final segment of the Cloud Show. Uh, thank you for watching. Uh, this final part is a little bit different. As we've just got through another year, we, we have many regrets. Uh, Bitcoins we didn't buy, servers we didn't build, blobs we didn't blob. Um, but I am delighted to be joined by my co-host, Mystic Jez, who is going to tell us all about his predictions for 2018. Well, not necessarily just my predictions. So I've been sort of looking around a bit of the market about who's been saying what. So John Engate from Rackspace, uh, his big predictions for 2018 have been the rise of the managed security service, about industry-specific clouds, blockchain going beyond just pure cryptocurrency, mm. uh, Alibaba's challenge to EMEA and the Asia-Pac markets rather than just pure China, uh, and also how containers will be the main conversation over cloud infrastructure. And you might find there's a bit of a theme running with the, the big hot topic around Kubernetes and how AWS have pushed stuff like their EKS mm. service amongst other people. Yeah, uh, Bob Evans, yeah, he was talking about containers, making some bold predictions about the death of on-prem, and also saying that cloud's not 
the best option. It's the only option now. Uh, I think that's pretty bold. Um, I, I think that that might be a little bit too far, but I think there's a good amount of merit in the conversation saying, uh, I think cloud might be your first option. Uh, there are other options available. Um, but he also talks a lot about artificial intelligence and machine learning, mm -hmm. um, as also something close to my heart about the generation of more ecosystems around cloud services, which I think is pretty interesting. Forrester, they've been saying that uh, organizations um, should reasonably not expect to see any new mega players. Well, I don't think that's a surprise. But what they have said, which is more interesting, is that the, uh, organizations should be preparing for lock-in, mm. which is uh, going to be a good conversation topic for a, a few episodes in the, uh, at a time. Uh, they also talk about cloud fragmentation outside the US. We'll now start driving some more focused solutions, which I, I think is pretty interesting. Uh, and I think that supports that, that industry-specific cloud uh, argument. Uh, and also joins the bandwagon around containers and Kubernetes, saying that Kubernetes will win the war on dominance in that space. So I, I, you know, it's very easy to sort of, uh, make a graze into the crystal ball. I, I, I can't help agree that the sort of the conversation that people are having around PaaS versus IaaS and that sort of thing, um, I don't think it's the death of PaaS, actually. I think it's more like the um, the, the making of IaaS more quiet because everything's mm. going to be sitting on PaaS solutions. That's going to be really driving in 2018. I think there's going to be more around ecosystems. I, I do think there will be a rise of certain industry-specific clouds. You look at sort of biotech and you know, FSI markets, mm. healthcare. I think, yes, there might be there's going to be some more solidifi solidification in that area, but... I don't think it's going to be universal, um, but I do think there's going to be you're going to see much more ecosystem alliance work going on, especially from the big players. Uh, I think that kind of really wraps up on the predictions there. So uh, I think it would be really good to get your opinions. What do you think? What do you think the big uh, predictions are going to be for 2018? You know, we'd love to hear from you on the hashtag The Cloud Show, uh, and also anything you'd like to say about whether uh, cloud service providers doing enough for SMBs. Yeah, again, please get in touch with us. We've got the Twitter handle as well. Uh, get in touch with us there, and don't forget to use the hashtag, uh, as well as our other social media for uh, media outlets. Exactly, exactly. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.